Welcome to the Acton Institute Events Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. For decades, the space race was the domain of the state. Today, space is rapidly becoming commercialized, opening vast opportunities for entrepreneurs. The commercialization of space also brings challenges. In this episode, we're bringing you a panel discussion featuring Daniel Britt, Joel Sursel, and Paul Stimmers that was delivered as part of Acton University Online 2021. The discussion was moderated by Stephen Barros, Managing Director of Programs here at the Acton Institute. This panel celebrates the role of the new space entrepreneurs and discusses the legal and philosophical principles which should underline humanity's shift from space exploration to industrialization and settlement. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash events podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Events Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. When mankind landed on the moon over 50 years ago, I'm sure that very few people imagined how dramatically space exploration would shift from almost the exclusive domain of the nation state to new space entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship. In many ways, space is no longer just simply about exploration, but it's rapidly becoming commercialized, opening vast opportunities for entrepreneurs. The commercialization of space, of course, also brings all sorts of challenges. Today, we are privileged to have several experts join us to examine this new space entrepreneurship, as well as discuss the legal, ethical, and technological considerations which should underline humanity's shift from space exploration to industrialization and settlement. So let me now introduce to you our distinguished panelist. Dr. Dan Britt is the Pegasus Professor of Astronomy and Planetary Sciences at the Department of Physics, University of Central Florida. Dan leads the Exolith Lab and served as the chair of both the Division for Planetary Sciences of the American Astronomical Society and the Planetary Geology Division of the Geological Society of America. He was educated at the University of Washington and Brown University, receiving a Ph.D. from Brown in 1991. Welcome, Dan. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Dr. Joel Sircell is the CEO and founder of TransAstronautica Corporation. TransAstra is dedicated to ethically accelerating the process of human exploration and industrialization of cislunar space and near-Earth asteroids. Joel received his bachelor's degree from the University of Arizona and his master's and Ph.D. in mechanical engineering from Caltech. Welcome, Joel. Good to be here. Thank you so much. Paul Steimers is a partner in the public policy and law practice of K&L Gates, LLP, a global law firm. He has addressed a wide variety of areas of space law and policy, including licensing and permitting of launch and re-entry, property rights in space, manufacturing and resource utilization in space, air and space traffic management, and debris mitigation. He holds a BA from the University of Washington, an MPA from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, and a JD from Harvard Law School. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Well, I must say that, that this topic is so vast, we could probably spend all day speaking about it, and it's an area that I find fascinating and so delighted that you can join us. You know, I'd like to begin, because the space seems to be moving so rapidly and developing so quickly, if each of you would take a moment to just to, to reflect and share with the audience what you think the most consequential or significant developments have been in just the past several years. And perhaps we'll start with you, Dan. What do you think are some of the most significant developments that have been transpiring? Well... I think what has been happening with the new launch providers and dropping the cost of launches by factors of three, four, five is something that is really revolutionizing the whole field, Mm. including our access to space. Um, This is something that happened right at the eight. I I like to to, to go back into historical perspectives. And this is something that happened during the, the beginning of the age of exploration and really allowed explosive growth in Western exploration all over the planet. You know, I hope we get into that a little bit more because as we ever have a new area of exploration, there's all sorts of other ethical considerations that we uh, need to address, which we'll get to here momentarily. Thanks for that. And, and how about you, uh, Paul? What do you think are some of the most consequential things that have transpired over the past several years from perhaps a legal standpoint? Well, and I, I would say from a legal uh, standpoint, the recognition of property rights uh, on the part of the United States government uh, in, in resources obtained in, uh, in outer space has been very important. I also think that uh, uh, the Artemis Accords, which is the set of agreements between the United States and its exploration partners on the Artemis mission to return to the moon, uh, is, is another significant development, which is only just beginning to, uh, to become evident. So there's there's been a lot of uh, of bipartisan and concerted effort to uh, uh, to move things forward on a on a legal front, and it's it's been very exciting to be able to be a part of that. Thanks for that, Paul. And how about you, Joel? What do you think are some of the most important consequential things that have transpired recently? Well, first, I completely agree with Dan and Paul. And um, from my perspective, a lot of what's happening is being driven by private sector investment. Um, we see. Um, a whole suite of space technology companies in the commercial private sector domain going public and attracting and attracting billions of dollars of private sector investment. And this is resulting in huge numbers of new business models opening up. Um, we project that there'll be about 100,000 satellites launched into low Earth orbit in the next 10 years. And um, uh, so it, as private sector jumps in and starts investing, we're going to see a massive acceleration of space industrialization. So when I think about all of that investment that's transpiring as an economist, I start to think of economies of scale and to ensure that we're able to get those economies of scale to actually make it profitable. What are some of the obstacles, maybe perhaps from a technical standpoint, uh, uh, Dan, that that need to be overcome in order to actually get that uh, uh, frequency of launch to make it actually profitable for businesses? Well, I look. I think the major obstacles are all the good ideas that are out there that still have not been developed to the point where you can get them into space. Mm-hmm. And so the major opti- obstacle is getting something that's at the engineering model stage into something that is space qualified and routinely used. And that's something that requires investment, requires a little bit of time, it requires a, a bit of trial and error. But that's the fundamental engineering that needs to be done. 
And what this will do is provide a whole suite of uh, basically a menu of technologies that you can use to uh, further not only exploration, but also your industrialization. So in light of that, and, and perhaps we could think about specific examples of types of activities in space that we think will eventually become uh, commercialized at a, at a quicker rate. So I think of the things that have been done already in, in space travel and, and tests that have been done in that regard. And then, of course, mining asteroids. What, what do you think are those particular uh, activities that would be most inclined to be commercialized in the shorter run as, a par- as opposed to further out? Joel, any thoughts on that? Sure. Um, the huge one that's happening right now is moving the internet backbone from fiber optic cables on the Earth uh, into massive constellations of satellites in low Earth orbit. And probably the leader on this is SpaceX with their Starlink constellation. Um, initially, they planned on launching 3,500 satellites, and now they're saying 40,000 satellites. Wow. Um, Amazon is building the Kuiper constellation, which will be thousands of highly capable satellites. As we move the internet backbone from fiber optic on the ground, it'll democratize communication on the earth, speed it up and improve it. And then a couple of new industries will emerge in space. It will make more sense to put data centers in space rather than on the ground because uh, uh, solar power will actually be cheaper in space given low cost launch vehicles. And, then, and it always makes sense to put the data centers you know, where the internet uh, performs well, and that'll be in space. So we'll be moving data centers in space. And then as we have tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands of satellites in low earth orbit, there'll be this massive platform uh, for cameras and earth observing systems that'll provide a constant global situational awareness of what's going on on the planet. And this sense-making system will fundamentally improve our understanding of what's going on environmentally and economically on the planet, and that'll make the whole economy more efficient. So what's happening in low Earth orbit right now is enabled by entrepreneurial efforts with launch vehicles, um, then low-cost spacecraft, massive uh, massive proliferation of spacecraft in low Earth orbit, and then a really big businesses moving in and providing logistics service first in low Earth orbit and then cislunar space. Um, in fact, my company, Transastra, is developing um, logistics vehicles now under private sector sponsorship to, make, to be a big contributor to all that. What I think is fascinating about this is I think it's easy to think about space and especially the exploration that has done in the past as largely just the benefit of attaining new knowledge and less so something that can actually provide more tangible benefits, say, in overcoming challenges of scarcity on the Earth. And so here you've given some concrete examples of where those things are actually going to have benefit concrete and very visible to people uh, on a day-to-day basis and therefore perhaps a profit uh, motive for individuals to get into that business and seek to to provide that. You you mentioned, I think, 40,000 satellites potentially uh, in low Earth orbit? That's just one company. That's just SpaceX's Starlink constellation. Our look at the market going forward is 100,000 satellites in low Earth orbit over the next 10 years. So that's that's factors of many factors more than all the satellites that have been launched uh, up until now. So, um, and then as that happens, the demand for launch vehicles is causing all kinds of new launch vehicle companies to be formed. And um, just in the last few, in the last several weeks, billions of dollars of commercial launch vehicle deals have been been closed with 
launch vehicle companies going public through SPACs, um, private sector deals in the billions of dollars, companies like Relativity, Rocket Lab, Astra. Um, it's the, the whole field is really exploding right now. Um, well, when I think about what, what you're describing, I think, oh, my goodness, all this traffic in space. And then if I, I you know, mentioned earlier, Paul, you have a background also in, in debris mitigation and so forth. And who owns that space, as it were, you know, property rights and, and the risks associated with that? What, what are these issues and how do we address them when people are getting that active? We've got to address property rights. Yes. Absolutely. And, and, and this all goes to the uh, an, another aspect of the scalability that you were talking about earlier. Um, because the, the the regulatory environment has to be able to scale. Right now, we we uh, have been licensing each individual launch as if it were a single unique event, and we need to move more toward a, a batch system of licensing launches. But as we start to put more and more things in low Earth orbit, uh, and and the associated debris that sometimes accompanies those things, even when uh, we're trying not to. Uh, we're going to have uh, a situation where we need to track it all uh, and where we need to to start thinking about uh, making sure that 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 access to that space, access to that that um, in space real estate, as it were, is is preserved and and distributed appropriately. Um, and right now, there is not a um, for, for the most part, there's not a, a clear uh, regulatory or, or legal authority that applies in, in that case. And so we're going to have to deal with that on a national level and on an international level uh, sooner or later. And the, the trick is going to be doing it in a way uh, that preserves uh, the incentive for private enterprise, uh, preserves a, a, um, the incentive to invest and to pursue these opportunities rather than creating a, a commons that end up, ends up being uh, prohibitive for anybody to access. Now, it's interesting when I think about all the issues involved in just debris in space and vehicles in space and satellites, I, I think it brings another issue to the fore, and that's some of the ethics associated with this. So on the one hand, you know, if you lose a satellite in orbit because it's hit some debris or, or what have you, that's, of course, a bad thing to happen. But what happens if it's a human being in space or a launch vehicle that gets struck? What are some of the other considerations from an ethical standpoint about advancing beyond simply exploring, but potentially even going into settlement and mining and so forth? I mean, we're talking about human beings that are ultimately going to be doing things more and more in space. So what, what are those considerations? What are the things that we should be concerned about? Well, I think uh, in, in, to begin with, uh, we're going to be exporting our legal regime <laughs> uh, with us as we go to space. Um, and one of the things that we're focusing on right now is when we are uh, sending people, whether it's to the moon or, or, or elsewhere, we want to make sure that the, the, the legal regime we're bringing along and the, and the set of norms and expectations for behavior that we're bringing along reflect the traditional values of the United States, uh, values like pluralism and openness and uh, mutual aid and things like that. And that's that's something that's reflected in the Artemis Accords, which I mentioned earlier, uh, which are the series of bilateral agreements between the US and each of its partners for exploration of the moon. Um, and among those are uh, the, the, the various principles that I just mentioned, and also things like uh, the ability to um, obtain and use and 
sell or trade uh, resources on site so that when we get to the moon, uh, we and our international partners uh, are agreeing that we can pick up moon resources, uh, that we can use them, that we can own them, uh, not the territory, but the resources themselves, uh, and that we can share them, trade them, sell them uh, for mutual benefit. There are other com countries that don't agree that that's the right approach. And so we're going to have a, a, an international conversation about that. It's currently supported by law, but uh, uh, that, that's something that's going to be um, discussed on an ongoing basis. I mean, certainly we, we understand that, that markets thrive best within the confines of the rule of law, subsidiary role of government, and an ethical framework that people adhere to. And I'm wondering, when we've gone in, in the history of the world and exploration in the past, certainly there are lessons learned uh, looking back on things that have been done that we would do differently now. Uh, say, for example, environmental damage when we uh, discovered new lands or perhaps even some uh, human rights violations that have occurred in the past. What sorts of things ought we be learning, uh, uh, Dan, from you know, lessons in the past that we can bring forward to the future as considerations as we continue to expand in space as a new frontier? Well, I think looking at the, the past great ages of exploration, people tend to forget that the age of exploration was also the great age of piracy. Hmm. And that when you have uh, poorly settled, poorly understood, poorly explored areas, with long supply chains and high value targets, um, rule of law is a tenuous thing. The other factor in the age of piracy is that it, whether you're a pirate or not depends upon your, your uh, uh, legal uh, and national point of view. A pirate to a Spaniard may be a national hero to an Englishman. And almost all the really great acts of piracy, major acts of piracy, were performed basically in the name uh, and under the legal jurisdiction of one national government, which is basically a crime against another national government. So there's a big jurisdictional problem in defining the norms mm. and getting sovereign entities to agree on what those norms are. Because in the early days, um, Spain automatically assumed that all the Western Hemisphere was Spanish. And so anybody that was in the Western Hemisphere that wasn't Spanish was, by definition, a pirate. And this is something we're going to have to work out on an international level because uh, sovereign countries are tough to deal with. Absolutely. Joel, how, how about you? Anything that you think of about an ethical framework to bear on this new uh, space environment? Well, there are several aspects to, I think, uh, an eth ethical framework that we need. One certainly has to do with human rights and the rule of law. Another that we've touched on already in this conversation is stewardship of the environment. I made reference to the, the projection of 100,000 satellites in low Earth orbit in the next decade. Um, as those satellites collide with each other and create debris, um, that needs to be mitigated. And the environment of low Earth orbit is um, in the commons of mankind. And how we deal with the commons and avoid the tragedy of the commons will be a critical issue. Already today for astronauts traveling in low Earth orbit, one of their chief risks is debris impact. 
And as we go to the moon uh, and the asteroids, there are valuable resources out there that entrepreneurs will want to be harvesting and returning um, wealth to the earth with. And um, how we regulate um, who has access to those resources um, and how we limit piratry, pirate, piratry and, and, and um, those sorts of effects will be very important. Um, finally, human beings will be moving into space in large numbers uh, in the coming years. We estimate that there are 250,000 people on the earth that will be able to afford a trip to the moon in the 2030s. Um, and so when we start to have large numbers of people in space, human rights and the biological effects of the space environment on people, how we expose them to that and who makes a profit and the risks of that all factor into bioethical considerations. And um, eventually all this entrepreneurship will lead to settlements in space and the bioethics of long-term multi-generational living in space relative to the commercial opportunities is something that we've just barely started to scratch the surface on. Well, it's interesting you bring that up. When I think about the bioethical and the human rights considerations that might be at play here, it's one thing in my mind to have an individual who volunteers with their own funds to take the risk and go into space or go into, a, you know, into, into orbit or even go to the moon. But then if you think about those individuals then returning to Earth, uh, would there be any potential considerations about the impacts if you have significant numbers of people going in and out of space and returning to the Earth? You know, this may be a stretch, but are there long-term epigenetic concerns about being in a space environment for a long period of time that would then come back and, and have implications for people back on, on Earth? Uh, is that something that we should be thinking through as, before we venture off into these great um, opportunities? So, I mean, it's always possible, but so far there's no scientific reason to think that anything that someone picks up in space would endanger anyone here on the earth. Um, it's always possible. And until we know, we should be very careful about it. Um, um, in terms of the bioethics, I, I would look at two other factors that might be worth considering. One is, it's, it's one thing for me to risk my health. Um, so for example, astronauts are highly trained professionals who are fully aware of the risk when they go into space. But it's another thing to, for a private individual to be selling goods and services um, without a full understanding of the risks. And, and there's good reason to believe that some of these risks are pretty extreme. Or in terms of epigenetic effects, or maybe this is where you were going. For long duration stays in space, um, it is fully within the realm of science that epigenetic effects on the body could affect future generations. So um, uh, this, this would be the greatest concern for space settlements. Now, space settlements sound like science fiction, but it's a very real near-term prospect of multi-generational settlements in space. Um, Elon Musk and, Tez and um, SpaceX are building the Starship launch vehicle with the express purpose of building a city on Mars. And um, as people start to settle, not just in Mars, but on the moon and in space settlements in orbit, um, it's one thing for an individual to expose themselves to that risk, but we really don't understand the biological implications of, of gestating children in space and multi-generational effects 
and we haven't even done the research. And terrestrial bioethics standards say before you can you know, make billions and profit on selling a good or a service, you really need to understand its, its implications for human health and, and secondary health impacts. So I think it's a really important question and we're just starting to scratch the surface on. Yeah, that's a fascinating thing to think through. The implications, of course, thinking about how it might impact individuals who are not going to be in space and what it could be uh, like for them in the long term. I want to circle back to some of the the legal uh, issues that are involved in property rights specifically, because we know that we have to have secure property rights in order to a marketplace to flourish. And I'm wondering if there are any examples already where precedent has been set, where, say, private corporation accesses some material from space and actually then has a legal claim to it and retains that, that material. Paul, Paul, are there examples, or Dan? Or? Yeah, uh, actually, the uh, NASA, NASA uh, explicitly set out to create that precedent in a recent uh, request for proposals uh, from private companies. They said, look, we want to pay up to, I think it was $50,000 for a spoonful of dirt on, on the lunar surface. And all you have to do as a private company or, or foreign nation is scoop up the dirt and hold on to it and then transfer title to that dirt to us. Uh, and we will pay you, you know, up to $50,000 for it. It's a tiny, tiny amount of money, a tiny amount of dirt. But the idea was to create that precedent to say, yes, we are going to pay for lunar regolith, the, the lunar dirt, um, and yes, somebody can acquire it, have title to it, and transfer that title to it. Uh, so that was a the, that was an important precedent, and we look forward to to seeing it sort of unfold uh, in practice. That uh, that was pursuant to uh, the Commercial Space Launch Competitiveness Act, um, which which made it clear that that could happen. Um, and all of that is founded on the uh, the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, which which. Um, uh, laid the framework for this to happen, although it wasn't it wasn't explicitly uh, made clear in that treaty. Thank you. You know, I'm curious. This this an, I've heard a term, and I'm going to kind of refer this back to Dan. Called I think it's in situ resource utilization. Is this also related to what Paul was just describing? And in a moment, I don't see any questions coming in yet from the audience. But in a moment, we'll see if we can shift to some questions from the audience. Well, in situ resource utilization (ISRU) is key to really the commercialization of space. Because one of the things you really need once you're out there is replenishment of fuel, consumables. You need to produce um, habitats, bases. All of this needs to be done with local resources. And who owns those resources once they're utilized and processed is is the key legal uh, uh, question and how you treat um, your interaction with an asteroid or with the moon and how it will affect those around you because there will be other actors out there utilizing the same sort of raw materials. So, we so think- yeah. So, so let me expand on that. The using of those raw materials, and Joel, I think your company has been uh, in, in researching this quite a bit. When you think about the the big constraint, I think, is getting off the Earth, right? If, if you're in space already, 
that seems to create the potential for enormous uh, benefits from reducing costs of continuing to do activity because you just don't have the, the payload or to, to have to launch off the Earth to get it out into, into orbit or beyond. So can you elaborate a little bit more about the impacts and perhaps the order of mag magnitude effects of increasing the commercialization of space once we get adept at having access to space and continue to use that as a base, as it were? Sure. Um, we know that the asteroids are loaded with resources that are incredibly valuable and very useful for space explorers and space settlers and, and entrepreneurs, the asteroids and the moon. Um, the way that I like to put it is, imagine if when you fly to Hawaii, you have to bring all your food and water with you. And imagine if the airplane that flies to Hawaii um, couldn't refill, refuel when it gets there, but it has to take enough fuel to get there and back. The cost of going to Hawaii would be so high that no one would ever vacation in Hawaii. Um, so um, uh, if, if you're just sending one individual, you know, if you're sending, you know, two astronauts to the moon, you know, the, the way that we did in Apollo or the early uh, Artemis missions that NASA's planning, it's fine to bring all the resources with you. But as you start to scale activities, it becomes economically prohibitive unless you learn to use the in-situ resources. So Transastra, since its inception, has been working hard on those problems. Um, we've developed a technology called optical mining for extracting water and other valuable volatile chemicals from asteroids from which we can make rocket propellant in space. And, and that, that will turn the asteroids into refueling stations to enable large-scale space industrialization. Um, likewise, uh, in our partnership with Blue Origin, we're uh, working on developing the technology to harvest um, water, uh, which is a key ingredient in rocket propellant, um, from frozen ices on the moon. Uh, so the economic impact of that is profound. Um, today, to, to, to carry people to the moon is a, is a multi-billion dollar proposition. Um, but NASA, the NASA chief economist funded Transastra a few years ago to do a study of what would happen if we used in situ resources on the moon instead. And so we did a study where we compared NASA traditional contracting with uh, traditional contractors uh, whose names the audience will know, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, those kinds of companies, versus, um, so using government-type systems engineering, uh, versus commercial co companies more along the lines of Blue Origin, SpaceX, and my company, Transastra, with and without harnessing in-situ resources. And we showed that um, over a period of time, you can drive the cost of lunar transportation down from um, uh, by orders of magnitude from you know billions of dollars per astronaut visit to millions millions of dollars per visitor. And what this could allow is uh, initially NASA to build an outpost on the moon that could be that could then grow into a thriving economic station akin to say the Antarctic station, which then over time it would even be affordable to build a hotel on the moon where for a few million dollars, high net worth people could go on a two week vacation to the moon. So the economic 
potential of in-situ resources uh, for space exploration and development is really profound. Any either of you want to add to that about the in-situ resource utilization and its economic uh, implications? I think I think the economic implications are huge, but that also brings up a couple of, of, of other legal and, and actually uh, international points. Number one, um, when, when you're both going for the same resources, uh, there's a principle of non-interference uh, and, mm. and uh, avoiding harmful uh, interference with other people's activities. And so if you get to a, a, a location first and start exploiting its resources, uh, then you are, to some degree, asserting a property right over the nearby area. Um, and as I said, the, uh, the Outer Space Treaty uh, prohibits claims of territory. So it's not a claim of territory as such, but it sort of functions as one. And it's going to be very interesting to see how that shakes out. In particular, uh, on the moon, the area around the South Pole is especially interesting uh, because of the way the sunlight strikes the moon there. Uh, it creates pockets of, uh, of, uh, th that, are, that are constantly in sunlight and pockets that are constantly in darkness, both of which are valuable. Uh, the former from a power perspective, the latter from a, a lunar ice perspective. And because that's so valuable, it's of great interest both to the United States and to China and uh, other countries that are focused on the moon. So uh, the moon, despite being a very large place, actually uh, has, has just a few places that are going to be particularly interesting for nations to go. And that will create an opportunity for uh, some near-term diplomacy. Um, so we're, we're going to uh, have to examine how we handle that. Um, and, and it's going to be important for us to uh, be there and be there in a a, a multilateral way uh, such that we're creating these expectations and and uh, and enforcing those expectations essentially through social action as much as anything else. Um, you, you, uniquely, all of the uh, the legal wrangling and the and the economic impact and the national security impact uh, of these activities, at least in the short term, is going to be felt here on Earth and is going to be adjudicated here on Earth. Uh, we're not going to have a lunar constabulary, at least for the, <laughs> the, the near term. Um, and so, so we have a, a somewhat unique uh, opportunity there to, uh, to address these issues here at home, even though they might be taking place, you know, three days rocket journey away from here. I mean, certainly it's, it's evident then that the flourishing potential commercial marketplace presupposes not only a stable rules of the game or rule of law. So you have to have the progress both in the legal arena uh, as well as, of course, the technical advances in order for this to come to fruition. Um, I, I'm going to shift gears a little bit and perhaps turn to Dan for our first question from the audience. And it's going to require also a pivoting to a second domain. And the question from the audience is this. Why have we seen so few innovations in deep sea exploration while we have had so many in space? So perhaps there's some analogies here. I'm, I'm not quite sure. I, I mean, I think of all sorts of resources potentially in the sea, and maybe that's a harder place to access deep sea than deep space. I don't know. Well, I'll start out by saying that deep sea applications are not my field. But I, see. I think there are a fair number of innovations in deep sea, and particularly in deep sea um, 
uh, uh, oil exploration and, and oil exploitation that are just astonishing. So I, what drives these innovations is the potential for, for return and profitability. And so you're seeing them in areas that are fundamentally fairly profitable um, uh, in resource exploitation. Um, so I'm not really sure that there are not uh, that that deep sea uh, innovations have been lagging at all. Well, I, I want to add a little bit to this question. Just ask, well, then what would be the resources that are in space, perhaps on asteroids? that we have the potential to gain much more effective extraction from than whatever those same resources might require to extract from Earth. Are there- Well, the, the big difference here is, is uh, a comparative advantage. Mm. The, the cost of lifting things off the Earth makes anything already off the Earth and in a reasonable position in space that much more valuable. But the low-hanging fruit are things like what Joel is going after in uh, structurally bound water in, in asteroid material. And not all asteroids have water, but if you find the right asteroid, it's potentially a, a very valuable fuel resource. The next one down the list is metallic asteroids. There's, these are asteroids that are essentially all nickel iron and, uh, and other metals potentially a, a huge resource in, in uh, having material for in-space construction. And you go down that list, your average rock, people don't realize, is almost half by weight oxygen. Mm. And if you can extract that oxygen out of that rock, and it's not trivial, but it is a huge resource. And that's sort of the things we're working on to mature technologies to do that in places like the moon. Thank you, Dan. Joel, did you want to elaborate on that a little bit and the work that you're doing in resource extraction compared to from an asteroid as opposed to the Earth? Well, a, a couple of thoughts. First, I'd like to loop back on the question about innovation in the space domain versus um, the, the ocean sea domain. Um, it feels right now as though we're going through an explosion of innovation in space and in a way we are, but the reason it's happening so fast in my view is actually that has been retarded for decades. Yeah. Um, so the government, so um, let, let, let's say a high net worth billionaire who's known to everyone listening to this pod, this uh, discussion asked me in around the year 2000, why is it so expensive to get into space? And, um, it, and, it, and there are some standard in answers that engineers give, and it turns out that those answers are wrong. They give answers like it takes so much energy. It actually takes the same amount of energy to la launch a Falcon 9 into orbit as a 747 requires to fly across the ocean. Um, when you really look at it, there, and there are technical answers to that question like, we don't reuse rockets, but we do reuse airplanes. That's true. But why is it that we don't use rockets, reuse rockets while we do reuse airplanes? And the answer is, up until just a handful of years ago, space was dominated by governments. And they didn't care about cost effectiveness, frankly. Um, 
that they they acted, they, they gave lip service to caring about cost effectiveness, but they did virtually nothing to drive down the cost of access to space. And technically, as an engineer and a businessman, when you look at the principles, the engineering and economic principles of getting into space, it should not be as expensive as it still is today. Um, the, energy re the energies required are not large. They're no larger than air travel. And rockets are simpler than airplanes. So a, you know, a rocket that carries payloads into low Earth orbit, if you look at the number of parts, the number of systems, the number of source lines of software, by, by any sort of objective measure, uh, a modern airline is a vastly more sophisticated and complex vehicle. So why is it so expensive? It's because the government was contracting for rockets from companies that were not motivated to cut costs. They were motivated to win bigger and bigger contracts. And so what's really happened is that um, uh, entrepreneurs like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, um, uh, the gentleman who's, who founded Rocket Lab, whose name is escaping me, Richard Branson, uh, and several others have started to look at space as a way to actually make money. And so they're using innovation and technology to reduce cost. And Dan, you know, earlier in this conversation pointed out that the cost of getting into space has gone down by a factor of three or four. That's very exciting. We have another factor of 100 that's coming in the next few years with full reuse, which is very exciting. And we're gonna see, so the, but, but this, is, this is all technologies that engineers and scientists have really understood are possible for decades. And it's only the fact that private sector is getting involved that's making it happen. So um, I, I just wanted to make sure that that was on the table. Absolutely. I, I want to run with that a little bit because you, you mentioned the misaligned incentives that uh, prevented co costs from going lower and creating a competitive atmosphere for pe people to make uh, space more affordable. Uh, and perhaps this is a question more for Paul. But as I understand it, Elon Musk at least once and perhaps a couple of times has sued and won to make sure that he has the opportunity to compete. And uh, how do you think that has changed the game so that people start to think differently about it's not just going to award to traditional contractors that have been in the business of space for a long time, but we really need to open up this uh, marketplace for individuals to demonstrate their ability to, uh, to be effective as entrepreneurs. Yeah, well, I think, first of all, I think the, you know, the, the incentives previously had been to beat the USSR. Absolutely, <laughs> that right. Was, that was the incentive. And, yes. and we, we structured things uh, in a way to, to do that. And we did not particularly care about the economics uh, as, as, as part of that. And I think Joel's absolutely right that, that as, we, uh, as we change and, and move into a situation where we're uh, we're we're essentially we're essentially moving from from Lewis and Clark and the and and you know government led activity to the wagon train where where everybody can go for their own purposes and 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 that's the dynamic that's fueling all of this and the 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 end of the crowding out effect of government investment here uh, is is proving tremendously helpful um, so when when we talk about access. Uh, certainly, uh, SpaceX has has uh, done a lot to press for opportunities uh, to to provide services. There have been a number of other companies that have been doing the same, um, and 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 really uh, trying to change the perspective of uh, the government as a customer. 
uh, in, in the 2010 NASA authorization bill, we worked to put NASA on the path of using commercial uh, vehicles and working with the commercial industry uh, to, to essentially buy rides on commercial vehicles rather than build their own. Uh, that's been tremendously successful. Um, one of the, the few bright points of last year uh, was the return of U.S. astronauts uh, being able to be launched to space from U.S. soil on a U.S. built vehicle. Uh, and that's a direct result of all of that. So I think it's 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 something that U.S. companies have had to fight for, uh, and and um, fight for for the ability to uh, to provide these capabilities as a firm fixed price uh, contract rather than a, a cost plus contract where the 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 company is essentially uh, a partner of the the government agency. Um, so the ability to to offer. Uh, a ride offer a capability as a service for a for a price uh, is 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 one of the new innovations from a legal perspective. Sadly, it's it, it doesn't seem like it should be much of an innovation, but it it really is um, something that has has enabled us to turn this corner and have a lot more capability applied to not only NASA but uh, but now the Defense Department is is starting to do the same sorts of things. Terrific. Thank you for that. I've got one more question from the audience. I'm going to shift gears. And uh, this goes back a little to what we had spoken about previously with debris mitigation. And the question is, who should be responsible for space debris cleanup? And how could this be enforced? What do we do about the debris out there? I'll just open it up to any of you to begin. So that so that that's a really hard question, in my view. Um, You know, the little country Switzerland has a company uh, called, I think, ClearSpace, um, and the Europeans are investing $100 million in ClearSpace for basically debris cleanup in low Earth orbit. Um, uh, it's, this is a classic problem of the tragedy of the commons. So the space environment uh, it doesn't fall within the sovereignty, sovereignty of any country right now. It's, it's in the commons. So there's an economic incentive to exploit it uh, without regard to environmental impact, the impact on other players or the impact on future generations. Um, so it, 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 it's, it's a very difficult question because if you say, well, there should be an international standard or law that prevents a, com- a country from going into space um, without means of cleaning up their mess in orbit, then um, people say, well, that's a violation of national sovereignty. And that's that's a good p- pushback. Um, so do countries really want to give up their sovereign- sovereignty uh, to an international standard that requires it? Um, so I don't know what the right answer is, um, except to say that one thing is very clear and that the United States should be doing more to require uh, uh, low Earth orbit cleanup and making sure that when satellite constellations are put into low Earth orbit, um, that there are adequate provisions for ensuring that the satellites don't go derelict and collide with other satellites. Um, a lot needs to be done there because it's, 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 it's already a significant issue for human space travel and safety of astronauts. And it's only gonna get more extreme as we move into the future. 
And I, I would just add on that the uh, the Outer Space Treaty uh, is at the heart of this problem in in some ways. I mean, it's a it's a significant technical challenge, but also the Outer Space Treaty says that when you send something up to space, you the signing the 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 treaty signing country are responsible for that thing in perpetuity. Uh, and that means that that uh, there's no law of salvage that applies to outer space mm. because everything up there is still owned. And so we have to figure out a way to transition to uh, a legal regime that would permit uh, companies to to go and and clean things up uh, and create a market for that. That's further complicated by the fact that some of the things that are up there uh, that may appear to be debris may not, in fact, be debris and may, in fact, be things that we just don't want people to pay attention to. Um, and so, so there's some some fairly complicated um, uh, legal challenges to overcome before we can actually start uh, cleaning things up. I will say uh, two quick points. One, the United States has done more than any other country to yeah. uh, address the debris issue, primarily by tracking as much debris as possible and making that that tracking data available to the world. Um, and uh, uh, second. Um, this is also an issue that that applies to um, uh, the size of, of of the company and the size of the satellite that they're that they're trying to put up. If you're a, a company trying to put up very small satellites, having to uh, address things like propulsion and and end of use uh, or end of life issues uh, for your satellite can be a, a, a real technical hurdle. Uh, and that that that. Is important, but it, it really will have an impact on the development of the uh, of the low Earth orbit economy. So let, let me ask: When you mentioned tracking and then sharing that tracking data, which of course is, is great to hear that that data is out there and that individuals uh, getting access or companies getting access to that data uh, enable them to, of course, reflect on how they get into space. Is the is the debris that is already in space? significant enough to be a serious deterrent for people to venture forth into space launch? I, I, my, my assessment is that it's, it's not that significant of an issue yet. It's certainly something that mission planners have to take into consideration. You design satellite constellations for deorbit life, um, and you, you build it into your plans. Um, uh, so for robotic spacecraft, for, for communication satellites and that sort of thing, it's, it's, an, it's a consideration, but it's not a dominant consideration. But one of the big businesses that is going to be driving space and space industry in the coming years is um, human adventure travel in low Earth orbit. Um, we can expect, um, you know, we're just seeing the beginning of it now with uh, SpaceX and others offering orbital commercial flights. Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos will probably go both go into space themselves on suborbital flights in July. Blue Origin certainly has the capability uh, and the temperament to be a company that would build hotels in space. As we start moving people into space, the risks of debris are already significantly higher, orders of magnitude higher for astronauts traveling in space than you would then say, for example, the safety level of airliners. And, and so, um, you know, the professional astronauts that fly to the space station are well aware of this space station is struck by debris routinely. We've been pretty lucky that there hasn't been a catastrophic failure. Um, so for human travel, it's, it's a big deal. 
That's terrific. It's, uh, I'm glad that it's not so much of a deterrent now, although obviously it has to be taken into account when people uh, venture into space. I want to shift gears and go back to some of the things we spoke about at the very beginning. And we talked about uh, the, the how the nexus between the public and private sector um, was important even to get to where we are today. And I think back to other uh, expansions across the country, say, for example, with the railroads, the transcontinental railroads, and there was some necessary partnership, public and private, to create a kind of an infrastructure in order then for the marketplace itself to begin to thrive. What do you see as the optimum way of approaching both the public and the private activity? Is Where should the government be focusing? Is it is it just strictly on clearly defining the rule of law, or is there a something else that needs to be done in order to make sure that this marketplace is established and thriving. And perhaps we could well, start. The, the most, go, go ahead, Joel. Well, uh, you know, the most dynamic company in the space industry today is SpaceX. And SpaceX has, has benefited tremendously from public-private partnership. Um, NASA started a program called COTS, for Commercial Orbital uh, transport services, I think it was, um, or cargo, um, which led to um, SpaceX being able to deliver cargo missions to the space station. But the requirement of these public-private partnership programs um, is that the private company co-invest real dollars. Um, and so if they go over budget, it hurts them as much as it hurts the government. That's a very powerful combination. And so um, public-private partnership and other transactional authorities, which is a, a term for a way of contracting to encourage that sort of thing in government, can be incredibly powerful. Mm. Um, you know, the, if you look at, for example, the Starship, which is the, the mega launch vehicle that SpaceX is developing right now, it's generations beyond any rocket under development under traditional government funding right now. And even the Falcon Heavy, which has reusable first stages, um, is, is, you know, it's arguably a true 21st century rocket. Whereas it's really surprising that the government continues to pour money into 20th century huh. approaches like, like the, the SLS rocket that NASA is investing in. Right. Just the cost overruns in SLS swamp the investment that companies like SpaceX are making in much more advanced, much more cost-effective vehicles. So we need to do more in that area. What we've done is fantastic, and it's a great path. Dan or Paul, anything you'd like to add in that uh, regard? What I, would, what I would focus on are the range of technologies, not just transportation, but in-situ resource utilization technologies that are in, at the stage of good ideas or in the stage of engineering models where you need to develop that technology. And again, this is an area where NASA has been doing some and needs to do a lot more to mature these technologies so they're usable in the space environment so that you can actually have a portfolio of technologies that companies can understand are reliable enough to hang their financial future on. And it would be tough to open a factory if you had to not only uh, uh, assemble your machines, but invent light bulbs also. Uh, and it's having that 
technological infrastructure of a range of things that will operate in space and help you produce resources that I think is a great area for public-private partnerships. Is our spacelift ranges no longer simply the domain of government you know, control? And are we now getting into private purchasing of, of land and just simply using private launch facilities? Is that where we're headed? Unclear if that's where we're headed. Every space launch has to go through the national airspace system and is going to be regulated as such by the uh, by the FAA. And I think there's going to be a lot of uh, uh, exploration of different ways to do that. But um, I, I want to follow up on what uh, Dan and Joel were saying and that the, the government is going to continue to be a major customer uh, in the near term for anything related to space. And uh, as such, I think the, the better customer it can be, uh, the better for the space economy. It, it needs to be a risk reducer rather than a risk yes. creator. Mm. Uh, so being a nimble customer, having stable rules, stable plans uh, is, is very important. Which in the political environment we have today may be a bit more of a hope than, <laughs> than a projection, I suppose. At least the political cycle seems to be a, a deterrent in this, this regard. In some ways, although I think seeing the transition that NASA's made from uh, the Trump administration and Jim Bridenstein to the Biden administration and, uh, and Administrator Nelson, we've, we've seen a, a remarkable degree of stability, especially as relates to the Artemis program. And I think that is heartening. Um, and, and continuing to see the Artemis Accords being, uh, being promoted. We just saw Brazil uh, join the Artemis Accords just this week, which was uh, uh, very good news. And so I think, I think there, are, there is cause for some optimism there. Terrific. We're, we're about three or four minutes uh, from the end of our discussion, so I wanted to make sure each of you had an opportunity to reflect on, on just what do you suppose are some developments or, um, or obstacles that need to be removed? Okay, I, we'll focus on the obstacles in order to flourish in the commercialization of space, you know, whether it be a legal obstacle or a technical obstacle or an economic or entrepreneurial one. What would you say? Let's start with you, Joel. What are the priorities of Move, removing obstacles to be successful? Well, um, for me, the good news is that the obstacles are being removed. I mean, uh, my company, Transaster, is incredibly grateful for the partnership at NASA, which has actually worked with us through the NIAC program to, inv to help us develop the technology for asteroid mining. And we've invested more than a million and a half dollars in that. And NASA has invested a little bit more than that. And as a result of that, um, Silicon Valley has picked us up. We've recently joined um, an organization called Y Combinator, which is a, a, a very uh, um, powerful way to leverage uh, venture capital. So what I see is that um, uh, the barriers are being removed, and it's all about getting venture capital into it and public-private partnerships. So I'm very optimistic as we move forward here. Terrific. Thank you, Joel. And how about... You, Paul? I agree that it's the removal of obstacles that's the most important thing. I think we, we have seen uh, that, that the forces that have propelled us throughout human history, the, the free market, uh, profit motive, uh, property rights, innovation, are, are 
properly aligned here to continue to propel us. And so what we need is, is a, a, a legal and a regulatory structure that enables that to happen and that, that, that stays out of its way. And we, we, we are well positioned for that. Uh, we're, we're in a great power competition increasingly with China on this front. And there's a temptation for us to try to beat China at China's game by uh, inserting ourselves into that, that, that process as a government uh, and you know, picking winners and losers in the marketplace and, and, and really trying to will ourselves into a leadership role. Instead, we should have faith in our system uh, and play our game as well as we can and know that that's going to, in the end, uh, be superior to any kind of top-down centralized system that, that might compete against us. Terrific. Thank you, Paul. And Dan, we'll allow you to have the last word here reflecting on that question. Thanks. Uh, I would strongly agree with Paul that it's really the institutional and regulatory framework in that is going to be key in, in property rights and in key in development. What created the Atlantic economy out of the last age of exploration was our approach to institutional uh, frameworks and, and private property. And this is something that's been looked into from point of view quite a bit. That said, there's a lot of room for the government to reduce risk in these technologies and to catalyze the good work that can be done in the private sector. Well, terrific. I must say that this conversation has really helped illuminate for me how it's all interconnected. It's easy on on the one hand to perhaps focus on just the technical challenges, but in reality, it's the whole nexus of legal, ethical, technical, and entrepreneurial considerations. And and I think you've given some great examples of how the rule of law coupled with the uh, market economy and the profit motive can enable entrepreneurs to really take advantage of of this new environment and enable humanity to flourish. So I want to thank each one of you for spending time with us and, and sharing your knowledge and background with the audiences. It's been a terrific conversation. And for all of you watching, we thank you so much for spending the time to listen to our panel, and we look forward to you joining us in our next panel.